you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1 as we continue our study, study there. Now we'll read for us verses 6 through 9 of chapter 1. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you do not, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Father, I pray that in these moments where we come together as a church and submit to your word, that we would consider one another and how our receiving of your word affects those around us. I pray for a posture of receptance, that that we would indeed receive the implanted word. We would understand what is in fact happening in these moments as we, your people, come to hear what it is you, our God, has said to us. Help us understand that we need your word even as our very food. And there is nothing so important in this life than to receive the words of our God. I pray that we would, every Sunday come into these moments with that gravity affecting us and influencing our actions, our demeanor, how we remove distractions from our hearts and in our lives for these few moments. And may we understand today with a text like this that the aim is our joy and and salvation. We It is not just to live a good life or to be uh, a certain way or to think the right thoughts about truth, but what is at stake as we come to your word is our joy and our salvation. Please strengthen us now. Give us the right kind of focus, the right priority in our posture. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to give you a few reminders today about the nature of this text. Verses 3 through 12 are, in fact, one long sentence in Greek. And so there is an inherent unity. And they're all related to verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the centerpiece of this sentence. And everything that Peter says in this sentence relates somehow back to that statement. He is essentially explaining to us why it is, in fact, that God should be blessed. Why should God be praised? Why should we render Him worship? He goes into everything that God has done. The whole passage, really, verses 3 through 12, set the agenda for the rest of the letter. You can actually hang each of the major sections of 1 Peter on something said in verses 3 through 12. And just as a reminder, your life needs to be lived through the lens of such passages. All Scripture is God-breathed. All of it is profitable. All of it is needful for you that you may be equipped. Though It is the case at the same time that the scriptures themselves commend certain passages for special attention. This is, as it were, a summary of the entire Christian life from start to finish. There are many passages like this in the New Testament. Verses 3 through 12 of 1 Peter chapter 1 is one of them. One commentator put it this way. There are a few passages in the New Testament where more of the great fundamental Christian ideas come together. 
So I want you to take it all in as we go through these verses, 3 through 12, as we've taken additional time to address these nuggets, as it were. How does that connect to our verses today, verses 8 and 9? Well, understand that it is related back to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The point of this long, long sentence is to say that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ should, in fact, be praised. So so since this whole passage points back to His activity that is praiseworthy, it's the basis of praise for which we should praise God, we have to keep that in our minds lest we lose sight of it in a passage like this that speaks about our experience of these things. As, As you heard as we read it, in this you rejoice, that was last week, and then we have this week, which is Though you have not seen him, you love him. So he's speaking about our experience or things that happen subjectively as a result of what God has done. But remember that he's saying these things as a reason to praise God. It should not surprise any of you who have heard the previous sermons in our study here in 1 Peter that I believe this passage teaches that God creates faith in us through his powerful work by His Spirit. But regardless of your views of human responsibility and God's sovereignty and salvation, the point of the text here is to say, God should be praised. And why should He be praised, Peter? One of the reasons in verses 8-9 through is that we believe and that we have joy. And I believe it's actually pretty easy to reconcile human responsibility and God's sovereignty in salvation Because it is we who believe. You must believe. God doesn't believe for you. But it is in fact God who Himself works in us both to will and to do His good pleasure. The work of the Holy Spirit solves so many of the problems or paradoxes of this theology. And the primary reason I'm telling you that now as a reminder is I'm going to say things in this message about the fruit of genuine faith that may discourage you. You may hear me say some of these things and just look at it and say, yeah, that's not me. But believe it or not, I am under burdens every week to impart to you zeal and encouragement from the Word. You could hear that in my prayer if you are paying attention. That's why we need to prefer one another and allow each other to connect to the text because it is this that is the basis of our life and our encouragement and our joy. And there is an there is a vast lack of joy and hope and peace in our world. And I don't know each of you the way that I ought to or the way I would like to, but I know that just because I know myself that joy and peace and encouragement are at a premium. And I want to connect you to the joy and encouragement that is found in the Scriptures. So I'm telling you that God produces joy and belief in us because I'm going to say things about belief and the results of genuine belief that if you just look at it without realizing that that is God's purview and His responsibility, you will leave discouraged. Because it is amazing. And I may be honest in a sermon, many of these things that we will see are not the case often in the Christian life. You rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You and I can often look at that, maybe the concept of the joy of our salvation, and from the outside looking in and say something like, well, that's nice that some people have that. I hope it that even though I don't have it or don't know how to get it, that my faith is still genuine. But the encouragement, and understand how this all connects. Connect the dots with me. The encouragement here is that this profound, deep joy, this glorified joy, is ultimately up to the Lord to work in you. Even when joy that is inexpressible sounds to you something like an unimaginable fantasy, something more like Narnia or Middle Earth than the real world, be encouraged. It is God's responsibility to work this faith in us that leads to this joy. We have things to do in it in our pursuit of joy. 
We have to set our eyes on what He has told us to set our eyes on. We have to turn away from sin. But it is His working in us that produces this joy. So be encouraged and rest in His work. Even if as I explain this joy to you from these verses, you say, that's not me. So, in these passages, verses 8 and 9, I think we have a, a further explanation of what he means when he says a living hope. Look, look at, back at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, etc., etc., waiting in heaven for you. So, while we wait... If we were to chart the the phases of this redemptive story of what God has done and is doing to save us, that living hope would be the banner over the right now while we wait. He has caused us to be born again even now to a living hope. So these verses, I think, verses 8 and 9, are essentially Peter telling us what is that living hope? What does that living hope look like in real time in our lives? What can that look like? So if you want to, you can draw a line of connection in your Bible. The to a living hope down to verses 8 and 9. This explains what it looks like in real time for us to live that way. And so now, it is to these verses that we turn. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. I want to connect the ideas of faith, sight, and love, and I think there is a there is an intentional distinction with a statement like this. It's pretty clear to me and other and most interpreters that Peter has in view the distinction between his experience and the experience of the other eyewitnesses to Jesus and the experience of the rest of us, because they got to see Jesus with their own eyes, and we didn't. And many of the people, you could even say virtually all of the people that Peter is writing to, didn't get to either. Because he says, though you have not seen him, he's aware of the distinction between their experience and his. And there's this real longingly sad reality in this statement like this, you have not seen him. It's acknowledging the fact that even though you would like to see Jesus, you haven't. And you don't now. This passage, verses 3 through 12, have already introduced many contrasts to us, right? You have joy on the one hand, sorrow on the other, an imperishable inheritance of all things with Jesus on the one hand, and then trials and suffering and persecution on the other, and many more. And this is another one. Though you have not seen him, like I and the other eyewitnesses did, you love him. I think it's important to understand that the apostles see and acknowledge this distinction, this disparity. They're self-aware of this contrast. And I think they're aware of the excuse or the complaint that might come from their hearers. Well, that's great for you, Peter. That's great for you, Paul. That's great for you, John. You got to see him. And I didn't. So what am I to do? It's, It's easy for you to tell me to be joyful because you got to see him. I didn't. So what's the point of Peter acknowledging it here? I think it is this, that lacking the experience of the apostles and the other eyewitnesses is no hindrance to love of Jesus and no hindrance to belief in Him and no hindrance to joy in Him. In fact, Jesus Himself says that there is in some sense a greater blessing for those who believe without seeing. This is what he says to Thomas. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So it's almost as if with saying a statement like this in verse 8, that Peter remembers Jesus saying that to Thomas and says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. So, dear brother and sister in Christ, do not say to yourself something like, if only I were there, if only I could have seen this, or how great would it have been to see all of these things happen. And friend, if you do not believe in the Lord Jesus, do not say, I need to see proof, meaning proof with your physical eyes. 
Our portion, the way that Jesus has chosen to bless you more than otherwise is to make it so that your faith would not rest on physical sight. Your inheritance is greater in some sense than even that of the apostles because they saw him. And you don't. Yet, you love him. This passage also alludes to two sets of eyes. I think it's important to acknowledge this. Even as we are saying we don't need physical proof, you shouldn't trust your eyes in in many ways. Your eyes can deceive you. That's the lie of, of empirical science. Yet, we do see him in some sense. The Bible refers to a second set of eyes called the eyes of our hearts. Once you understand that faith that gains this blessing is not without any kind of sight, there is no such thing as truly blind faith. It doesn't exist. That's called speculation or guessing. And Jesus isn't honored by people who guess that he exists and he is who he says he is. No, faith rests on real sight. It's hard to explain it. It's hard to appeal to you if you can't see him in this way, if you don't understand that type of sight. It's, it's like intuiting the truth of a problem, the, the truth of, of some equation that you can see it with your mind. And it's not written out. It's nothing that your eyes, your physical eyes would see, but you see the truth of it. You see the appeal of it. And Jesus says in John 3 that unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. He's not talking about physical eyes. He's saying that it requires a new birth, a new heart, in order to see this reality that God is doing in the person of Jesus. And then if you go to 2 Corinthians 3-4, through 4, I mean, I don't know of a denser passage that speaks of these matters. He says that, The glory of Christ is there to be beheld, but the God of this world is blinding the minds of the unbelievers from seeing it. And yet, when one turns to the Lord, meaning when you forsake your sin and trust in the witness about Jesus, then the veil is removed and you can see, not with your physical eyes, but you can see with the eyes of your heart, the glory of Christ. It is there to see, I promise you. So, what's the point of this angle as it relates to this text? Loving Christ without having seen him means that the second set of eyes that you have, in fact, do see him. You cannot love what your heart does not see. It's impossible. That's vain speculation or or infatuation with an idea. The love of Christ I want you to understand this. Loving Christ as he deserves to be loved is harder when all you see is with your physical eyes. At least right now, because of who we are. The eyes of your heart can see his very face in the gospel. That's the point of 2 Corinthians 3 through 4. If you just want to stay, I was going to spend a lot more time in 2 Corinthians 3 through 4, but I could spend a lot of time there in almost every message, so just go study it. Yourself, It is very key on these matters. If you want to talk about that later, I'd love to chat. I also want to talk about the connection between love and assurance. Okay, Assurance of salvation is something that many of us have struggled with, and it is a natural struggle in the Christian life. Um, I want to say that from a place like the pulpit. It is, it is natural to have doubts in that respect. To question whether or not these things are so. And at some level, that's helpful to question if you are or are not in the faith. But before Peter speaks of belief and faith, which he does in the next phrase, though you do not now see him, you believe in him. Before he gets to belief, he's talking about love. You love him. And I want you to understand that there is so much assurance, so much stability for your heart if you understand The basic affirmation, I love the Lord Jesus. What Peter is saying, with such love and encouragement for his hearers, is this. You want to know how you can be assured and know that you are in this? You can know so because you love the Lord Jesus. 
Notice in Jesus' depiction of the final judgment, those who are confused maybe a little bit by the fact that they're not getting, gaining entrance into the kingdom of heaven, what do they say? Did we not? Did we not? Did we not? Appealing back to their works. What they brought to the table. No one's saying, but I loved you, Lord Jesus, because they didn't. And if you love the Lord Jesus, the real Him, the real resurrected Messiah, then you can walk in a bold assurance of your salvation. That is of God. This is another reason why we must be so word-centric as a church. I want you to see Jesus. It's, it's written up here on this music stand for me to remember each sermon. Sir, we wish to see Jesus because your heart cannot love what your heart does not see. And it is, I am under burdens every Sunday, whatever text we come to, to show you your Messiah so that you can in fact love the real Him, not your idea of Him, not your version of Him, and certainly not the culture's version of Him, and not just the, the G-rated version of Him in a manger. The real resurrected Messiah, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, I want you to see Him and love Him. Because when you do, when you know that that which I am loving is in fact the Lord Jesus, then you can know that you're in Him. You are. Though you do not now see Him, you love Him. John Piper, theologian I love and respect, says it this way, I have met Jesus in the Gospel in His self-authenticating glory. And He has won my admiration, my allegiance, and my trust. That's what happens. That is biblical faith. When you see Him as portrayed in the pages of the Scriptures and as the Gospel is faithfully preached, that He wins your affection and trust and allegiance. If you love Him, the real Him even if it is imperfect, and even if it is not resulting in all the joy that you want it to result in, the very fact that you love the real Jesus is proof that God is in you and that you are in fact one of His children. James says that faith without works is dead, and we could say simultaneously that faith without love is dead with equal biblical support. It does not matter what you prayed or what you think or how much theology you have right. If you don't love the Lord Jesus, what you have is not faith. And what you have is not salvation. On the other hand, if you are filled with doubts and troubles, and if you are beset even by sins, yet still cling to Christ in love, trusting that He will deliver you, He will save you, He will purify you, He will surely do it, then what you have is indeed, my friends, genuine faith. That's what it comes down to. And now I want you to see the connection between faith and joy and glory. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. There's a sense of anticipation in this text. I want you to note this, and I really want you to see it. Though you do not now see Him. These people didn't see Him, and now they don't. They haven't seen Him at all, and He's using the modifier now. What that means is it's pointing forward to a time when they, in fact, will see Him. There is yet a disconnect between the experience of the eyewitnesses to Jesus and our experience. And the authors acknowledge that. And while the Bible speaks of the superiority of believing in Jesus without dependence on your physical eyes, yet it will not always be so. We don't now see Him, but we will. This is the anticipation of genuine faith, that one day every eye will see Him. And those who are eagerly anticipating that day when He stands on the earth will purify themselves and even work to hasten His return. Genuine faith, you need to understand this, is anticipatory. 
Big word, but it, it, it anticipates something. It is looking forward to future realities. It's not just believing and trusting in Jesus for help in bad situations when they come up. It is one day this will be the case. It anticipates something. If you grew up in a house where Christmas was celebrated and made a really big deal, right? And there's a difference, okay? They're celebrating Christmas and then families that make it a really, really big deal, okay? And I grew up in a family where, because of my mom's zeal for the holidays, it was a big deal. Starting right after Thanksgiving, we went up to the attic and took all the decorations. We're talking 24 very large Rubbermaid containers of Christmas decorations, okay? And we carried them all the way down the two flights of stairs to start setting it up. It was a weeks-long process of prepping our house for the full Christmas season. And as a child, you anticipate each of these days, and the, the sense of anticipation grows greater and greater as you see the closet where they stored all the presents just filling up and filling up and filling up. Okay? There were eight of us kids, so you know, it has to be full uh, for anyone to have anything. So it was a big deal, and, and, and the, the vision of what is going to happen on December 25th gave a sense of zeal for that happening. We looked forward to future realities of Christmas morning because we knew it was coming. Does your faith in the Lord Jesus cause you to live and strive in any way similar? As a child eagerly anticipates Christmas morning and the way it transforms your attitude and your your expectations and your your thoughts about today, knowing that Christmas morning is coming. That's what hope in the return of Jesus Christ ought to have for the believer. Does your faith cause you to live and strive in a way that doesn't make sense to the world? Because for them, Christmas isn't coming. Part of the fruit of genuine faith is that it compels us to live in line with this hope that we have. It really does change everything. If everything you're doing in your Christian life is exactly what a normal, well-adjusted, sensible, wise, non-believer would do, you're doing it wrong because they don't have hope and we do. What are you doing, believer, that is different because you have hope? Because you anticipate with real expectation that the Lord Jesus will come and stand on the earth and render to everyone according to His works. This hope is that one day we won't need faith anymore. Not at least in the sense we have it now, because your eyes will see Him. I want to also say to you that faith is the root of joy. I want you to notice this connection. I think it's made even more explicit by this text. Look, 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 look at how he do, does it in verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Okay, so we have in the first one, not seeing on the one hand, yet love on the other hand. And then in the next phrase, though you do not now see him, so, so lack of sight on the one hand, just like in the first comparison, and yet now you believe in him. And then, after belief, he says, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. I want you to see how he is helping you understand the root of genuine joy in your life as a believer. Deep trust in the Lord. A resolve of the will to take Him at His word. To see Him. To love Him. And to listen to what he says and obey at any cost, that is the path to true, genuine Christian joy. The way to peace and happiness and joy and all these other things is not, on the one hand, not to care about them. Okay? You should desire to be happy. That may sound odd coming from a Christian preacher, but Jesus is not honored by dreary worshipers. Understand that. The joy of God's people in God is the very cornerstone of the praiseworthiness of what God has done, that they are content to be happy in Him. 
You should chase joy and go towards the things that give you the most joy, i.e., Jesus Christ himself. You've got to make a joyful noise into the Lord. It's a moral obligation if, in fact, you belong to him. When we come together and we sing, it is not just getting through the words of the songs. It is not just trying to sing on key. And it's certainly not to try and impress people with our vocal folds or having good pipes. It's a temptation for anyone who can sing well. It is to make a joyful noise unto the Lord because He deserves it. And it's not that we need to pretend to have joy. It's that we, we, we speak, we preach to even our own hearts and say, you must delight in God. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Hope in God. Since we are made in the image of God, I want you to understand this. Since we are made in the image of God, then your joy, your happiness, your peace, and your rest is found in the one who is the image of God, Jesus Christ. I want you to also see that this joy is not just speaking about what you can have in perfection one day when all the stain of sin is removed. But even now, yes, even today, through trust, through entrusting yourself to Christ, to founding your life on His very words and committing your life to render Him the glory and honor due His name out of a heart of joy, that posture is the root of joy that can cause this kind of joy, inexpressible, filled with glory, now, today. It is yours for the taking If you're in Christ this morning through faith in Him or not, this joy is yours for the taking now through trust in Him. I want you to understand that that the Christian life is not about just believing that God's way is best. Anyone with half a brain can acknowledge that the law of God is good. And it is insanity and rejection and rebellion that brings a person to say it's not. This is what Paul says when he says, against such things there is no law. Like ev- anyone with the, with, with the right mind can acknowledge that these things that Jesus commands us to do are good. Be self-controlled, right? Who in their right mind would argue against that? Even if you're a hedonist, you have to have self-control in your hedonism or you're going to die. No, the Christian life is, that, is not just that God's way is best, but that Jesus is best. What we want is Him, and no less. Not just what His path or His way brings us into. It is Him. I will not rest until I have Him. It's the pearl of great price. It is the treasure hidden in the field. It's Him. There is so much. I want you to understand this too. I know I say that a lot, but there's so much. This, this is the very root of everything for your life. This is what it means to live in that living hope, is to have joy in the Lord Jesus. Yes, even joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory today, right? Not at the far end of years and years and years of becoming more and more spiritual as a Christian, but today. There is so much wrong with us that you, you can't use enough of the duct tape that the world offers you through self-esteem and medication and a better life, a better family, a better situation, a better job, a better house, whatever it is, you cannot render yourself joy through those things because there's so much wrong with you. There's so much wrong with me. Those things, even though they're good and would be gifts from God, cannot create joy in you. It's like throwing more good fuel on the fire that hasn't even started yet. You must have Christ. And the way you can have Him, yes, really have Him, the fountain of all joy. He calls Himself the rivers of living water springing forth to eternal life, is to trust Him fully. Trust that He is who He says He is. Trust that He can do what He says He will do. And believe that you should do what He says to 
to do. No matter what other solutions might be necessary in your life, no matter what else might be needed, Solomon has already done the experiment for you. He, did, he withheld from himself no pleasure. He had everything he wanted, and yet he acknowledged that it was empty. You can have everything in perfection under the sun, but you were made for eternity. And until your soul connects with Jesus Christ Himself, you will not have joy. Because it's only found in Him. I want you to see this too. This is where we get to the place where it may be discouraging as we explain the, the, the magnitude of what he's talking about. Inexpressible joy, a preview of glorification. Literally, you could render it this way. This is how Job's translates it. And you rejoice with a glorified joy beyond words. This word glory has already appeared in this text. We've already talked a little bit about it um, when he says that glory is to be ours. Look, look, look at what it says. In this you rejoice. This is verse 6. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. So there's, there's, a, there's a future sense of glory that is waiting when our salvation is revealed at the last time. Yet, even now, in this joy that is yours through union with Christ, it is filled with glory. So glory is not something to be had at the end. It is something through your joy that is to be had now. Rooted in belief and faith and trust. All part of this living hope that we've been born again into. And I would say that those of you who have suffered greatly and yet through it have maintained hope in the Lord, in the midst of it can testify that this is the case. It is an inexpressible joy beyond words. And here I think we can drill down a little bit into what this glory means. It is the bigness of something. It's weight. It's gravity. Or the expression of that weight or significance or gravity, size, significance of something. So this joy that can be yours, dear Christian, that is yours even now... At least it's yours for the taking today, is, is simultaneously, on the one hand, undescribable, and yet if you began to describe it, you would use words like big, significant, weighty, depth. What the world chases, understand this, what the world chases in their pursuit of happiness is a light, babbling brook of being cheerful. And there's also a Christian version of this. This is kind of Pollyanna, syrupy, sweet, southern kind of happiness that can pervade our culture sometimes. This joy that can be yours through trust in Christ is a deep, deep river moving with power. But maybe yet without a sound, it's, it's inexpressible. But heavy, resolved, bold, and defiant. Defiant of the enemy, defiant of Satan, sin, and death. It, it, it is assertive. This is the flavor of what Paul says when he says, I boast in the Lord. That even in view of all of the oppression that Paul was under, he says, I'm boasting in the Lord. I'm joyful in the God of my salvation, even in view of all of that. And I want you to understand, as we discuss this joy, it can be yours, this Glorified joy beyond words. Joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory. Sin is only possible when, in essence, we distrust God in some way. Whenever we sin, it's because we have lost interest in God and disbelieve something that He says about Himself. That's what sin is. And so, the only thing that can get at this joy and take it away is our own sin. 
That is the greatest enemy of your joy. Yes, suffering in this life makes joy difficult. The sin of others makes joy difficult. But the reason it makes it difficult is because we are tempted to sin in response to being sinned against and in response to suffering. That's what makes your joy hard. Suffering in this life... Sins of others can't get at this joy because it is founded on trust in the Lord Jesus. If you've been a Christian for some time, or even for a short time, you can probably remember moments of this kind of profound joy. When you knew it was genuine Christian joy, the kind that Peter is talking about, because it was weighty. It wasn't the feeling you get when you open a present on Sunday. It was something altogether different. Maybe it was in the midst of suffering. Or maybe in the midst of dying to self. So things that are unpleasant, suffering and dying to self, those are inherently not present. But you detected a sense of genuine, deep joy. Even as you were putting to death the deeds of the flesh, maybe you had for a few brief moments at least an inkling of this kind of joy. That joy that you can sense maybe welling up in you as you set aside distractions and sing with bold voice, joy to the Lord, to the world, the Lord has come. In those moments, is what we're trying to do when we sing together is remind ourselves of the joy that is ours by inheritance. It might have been just a glimpse that you've had, dear Christian, of this kind of joy. And if you do not trust in Christ this morning, this joy in Him is yours for the taking even now. Trust Him this day. And I think it's right to call this joy a preview of glorification. Because this is what the old hymn calls a foretaste of glory divine. This joy that is yours even now, inexpressible, filled with glory, is but a preview of what will be yours in full. So imagine, if you will, a time where you felt the most profound joy in the Lord that you have ever felt. Any experience you can think of. Maybe it was when a friend became a believer. Maybe it was when you heard the gospel clearly in a sermon in a way that you hadn't before. Maybe it was when you gave your heart to the Lord and trusted in Him at the first Maybe it was when you realized how much God has saved you from. Just think of that experience, that sense of joy. Maybe it was when we were singing together. Songs have a way of doing that and summoning joy out of us. Then multiply it times ten and stretch it out over every moment of your life, however many more years the Lord gives you, and then bundle all of that together and push it into one moment, and that is a scratching of the surface of an idea of what will be yours even in the first moments when you arrive on the undying lands. One of my friends said to me after I explained the joy that could be ours in the Lord that way, he said, I would dissolve if that were to happen to me. The song that says, I can't take it in. This this magnitude of joy that is yours that we just get glimpses of and that we're summoned back up to as we fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus is but a preview of glorification. Do you know what is waiting for you? This is why it's fascinating. The glory to be revealed in us is what the creation waits with eager longing to see. Yet even now, these glimpses, these moments, and by God's grace, the steady and growing increase of joy that, can, that you can have now is a preview. Know what He is preparing you for. It is not just the absence of suffering. It is not just a time to exist after death that won't be unpleasant. It is the fullness of joy for which you were already made. And the reason that we have to experience trials is, as Paul himself says, to prepare us for that. Your soul, just as my friend said, can't take it in. 
If you were to be blessed, even now with that measure of joy, you would dissolve. You wouldn't know what to do with it. The human soul, your soul right now, can't be under that weight of glory yet. And that's what sanctification is about. Getting you ready for even just those first moments of receiving the fullness. And now I want you to see faith, waiting, and salvation together. He says, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This phrase could be translated like this. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So there's two sense of salvation in the Bible. And Peter has already discussed one of them. I actually think both of them are here in this text. He talks about the salvation that is to happen at the end of time. You being saved right now, really, in in many senses in the Scripture, means that you are covered even now by the promises of God that He will save you on the day of His wrath. And that day hasn't happened yet, so in a sense, you are not yet saved. But there is another sense in which the Bible speaks of salvation that is ongoing, that we are being saved every single day. And this is the flavor of this statement. Obtaining... There's an active participle. You are, you are getting, it's the same as I would say, I am preaching right now, or you are sitting right now. So he's saying, you are obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the process that Paul calls sanctification. Yet here, this depiction is not necessarily a regimen that we go through to improve ourselves, but we're receiving, we're obtaining it, we're being given the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. And I wanted you to see the connection between this, this this not seeing but loving and not seeing but believing in and rejoicing, that is the process through which we obtain in a day-to-day way our salvation. So the way that you pursue your salvation, brothers and sisters, is pursuing the things that help you cultivate sight of and love of the Lord Jesus Himself. It's not through severity to the body. It is loving Jesus more. That is how you obtain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's what sanctification means. It is nothing less than a Bigger, more intentional, and firmer grasp of the Lord Jesus Himself. And we also see, I think, the posture of waiting. There's this, it's, it's, it's almost paradoxical. There are no true paradoxes. Things can seem contradictory or counterintuitive. But he says, obtaining the outcome now the salvation of our souls, and yet we wait for salvation. So there's these two realities side to side. And what that, I think, indicates is that the life of the Christian is a posture of waiting. It's kind of a theme of Peter's two letters. And in fact, at the end of Second Peter, he uses the word three times to describe what our life is like right now. You're waiting for these things. What type of persons ought we to be? What type of lives ought we to live? Waiting for these things. It's all waiting And that can be really frustrating. But one of the fruits of genuine faith is a posture all of our lives of confident and contented waiting. Being at peace here, yet we'll never arrive here. You can be at peace because you're waiting for the fulfillment of God's promises and yet knowing that none of it's going to be right while we are here. And it is so easy to put your hope and your happiness in other things because, as we have known for a long, long time since we were children, that waiting is hard. But that bold, confident posture of, I'll wait, is in fact what faith is. The Lord has promised good to me. His word, my hope, secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. There is a frustration and angst, a bitterness, jealousy, greed, lust, and discontentment are all symptoms of an unwillingness to wait. If you trust that what the Lord will give you is better than all of that, then you can wait. 
You can have eager expectation and longing for the revealing of Jesus Christ at the end of all things because you know that it's coming. This is the fruit of genuine faith. As counterintuitive as it may sound, that the less we find our joy in circumstances and the more we derive our joy from faith in God, the more and more ready and eager we will be until He comes. And in the meantime, we can have peace. And I want you to also see the purpose of faith. It's interesting to me that he says the salvation of your souls. He could have just said obtaining as the outcome of your faith your salvation. But he modifies it with the statement of soul. And I think we we believe and treasure the fact that God saves the whole person and our bodies will be restored and glorified. We will not be disembodied spirits. Even as Christ will have His human body in heaven, so will we. So that was always the plan. But understand this, that the reason you will need a new body, the reason you will need a new heavens and a new earth, is because what is in us has corrupted all of it. What needs saving, really, brothers and sisters, is your soul. And you will have a new one so that the moment you arrive into the new heavens and the new earth with a new body, you won't immediately corrupt it. That's what God is saving to redeem and fixing. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We shall be changed. The very core, the very you of you, that has to be saved. It is not that you have gotten yourself in a bad situation. It is not that you are just under a judicial verdict of God being guilty of sin. Those things are true. But the very you of you needs to be radically changed and born again. That's the only statement that the Bible gives that can kind of sum it all up. You've got to be restarted. You've got to be recreated because it's, it's, it's what is in us that is the problem and has caused the fracturing and breaking of everything. The reason the world is under judgment and condemnation and the impression of the curse is because of what is in here, not the other way around. And so there's two cautions I want to give you on this, that what God is doing through this not seeing Jesus, but loving Him, not seeing Him, but believing in Him and rejoicing in Him, receiving as a result of that the outcome of our faith, genuine faith, the salvation of our souls, is that you can be either overly spiritual or overly worldly in response to that. If it is just your soul that He is saving, then who cares about the physical world? What does it matter? All of it's going to be destroyed anyway. Purified by fire. I mean, it's not going to be a flood again like it was with Noah, but He's going to destroy everything with fire. But, believer, everything matters because the place you live, your family, your job, the food you eat... The things that you steward, the relationships that you have, this planet is all the stuff of obedience to Christ. In what other context are you going to trust Him? In what other context are you going to say no to sin and yes to righteousness? In what other context are you going to set aside the pleasures of this world for the sake of the good of others? Well, everything matters. But on the other hand, I want to really press into this. You're not taking anything with you. Nothing. You know, uh, around the holidays, people fly, unfortunately, and we have to fly in airplanes to go see family. We've done it. We're not doing it this year, thank the Lord. Uh, Not that I don't like my family, but it is stressful to fly around the holidays. And when they give that little speech, that little spiel before you take off that none of us listen to, they say, in the case of a water landing, take nothing with you. And I think in my mind all the time, like, could, could I grab my wallet? Like, could, could, could I just get anything? Or is they saying nothing? Are they going to stop me at the door if they see me, like, carrying even my, my, my backpack on my back? Like, what are they going to do and, like, not let me be saved if, if from the plane if I have something with me? But understand, the Bible intensifies it even further. It's not that you can kind of try to take something with you and then there's a debate at the gates of heaven. It's that you can't take anything with you. It is impossible. Consider the ark. You were there right as the signs of rain began to develop, even though you didn't know what it was, and you you knew that 
in a moment of clarity, by God's grace, that the door was going to be shut, would you go back to your house and grab something? That's the sense of this text. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. We prioritize and treasure our stuff so much. That's a caution in a season that we're in. The only thing that you will take with you is your own soul. The very you of you. And that very true you of you will trust in Christ at one degree or another. And that itself will map out to your reward. The way that you trust Him or don't trust Him. Even now. I want to give you a few final exhortations in view of this. One, is this true of you? Is this joy that is glorified beyond words, is that true of you? Has it ever been true of you? You cannot leave this up to chance. If not, set your hope on the Lord. Your joy is at stake. Your happiness in this life. It it matters to the Lord. And He's saying, here's my Son. Will you delight in Him? He's the only one who can give you what you need, what your soul craves. Have Him. Trust Him. Here He is. I would also say this, do the things that increased your trust in and love of the Lord Jesus. There are things we do. This is what sin is about, okay? It's not just uh, breaking one of God's commands. It is doing things that decrease your love of and trust in Jesus. So anything in your life, even if it is morally neutral or a good thing, if you're doing that, and it is not increasing your joy in or trust in Jesus in some way, then it shouldn't be a part of your life. Because all you're taking with you is your soul. And in the most ultimate sense, and the amount you trust in and love Jesus is the matter of your reward and glory forever. So do the things that help you increase your love of and joy in Jesus. And I will say this, especially to our young people, as the pressures mount, as you get older, to decide what you're going to do with your life, this is the will of God for your life. That you would have love of the Lord Jesus. That you would believe in Him. And that you would have joy that is inexpressible, filled with glory. This is the will of God for your life. Pursue these things. Set everything else aside in terms of priority. Of course, you've got to do things and decide where you're going to work. But do those things in a way to gain more joy and love and trust in Him. And I'll also ask you this. Around Christmas time, it's, it's apt to say this. Where have you left Jesus? Is He still in the manger for you? Is he still around the Sea of Galilee for you? Is he still hanging on the cross for you? Is he still in the tomb for you? Or is he just up in heaven for you somewhere waiting for you to arrive? He must be the apple of your eye. That which you chase and pursue. Though you do not see him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. Where have you left him? Is he derelict to you because you aren't actively setting him as the apple of your eye? I also want to say this. Fight for joy. Do do not settle for a lack of joy in your life. You must fight for it every day. It's almost as if the blank, it is a blank slate every morning. You wake up and the task is, line number one, fight for joy in the Lord. That's how serious it is. And I would say, help others do the same. That's what this body is about because none of us possess the ability or the skill or the clarity of mind to fight for our own joy. So in some ways, you're even better helping someone else fight for their own joy than fight for your own. And they are maybe better at helping you fight for yours than you are. And lastly, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. The way the Bible seems to give us over and over, the way to both coach our own hearts and to distance ourselves from unbelief is to sing. 
The enemy hates it. You want to see radical change in your life? Begin singing solid songs that point your eyes and the eyes of your heart, obviously, to the Lord Himself. As we sing these songs this season, especially, that focus more and more on the Lord Jesus and His coming, think those thoughts as well. I want you to have joy. I want you to increase in your joy, and I want you to be stable in it, and I want it to be inexpressible and filled with glory. And it can be, even today. Father, thank you for this great, immeasurable gift you have given us in your Son, Jesus. That even as pure and as holy and as wonderful as he is, that he would be happy to become the foundation of our joy, us former rebels. Open our eyes that we may see him. Help us set our eyes on him and help us turn away from the things that draw our attention away. May he be our vision day and night. In Jesus' name, amen.